Morning. Thank the Lord for coffee. God's good in his provision of caffeine. Well, good morning to you all. I bet you thought or rather hoped that you'd seen the last of me uh, after five weeks of uh, me speaking. Uh, but sadly, as, as Paul mentioned, Sam Douthwaite has been unable to make it today. Um, Reuben was actually taken into hospital over the night. So uh, here I am again. So we're, we're starting a new series today. And we're going to be working through the, the letter, the book of First Thessalonians. It's in the New Testament of the Bible. And we're going to be doing this pretty much right the way through to May with a little break over Easter. But that's going to be our focus right the way through to May. And Keith will be continuing next week in our series. First Thessalonians is the first of two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, which was in uh, what we now uh, call northern Greece. Paul was called an apostle, which meant that he was a... a one of the special leaders that was given unique authority uh, to lead the church right in those early days of the church. And he wrote quite a lot of the letters of the New Testament, and he wrote two letters in particular that we're looking at at the moment, um, two to the church in Thessalonica. This one, which we're looking at now, which we call First Thessalonians, and then the next one, the second letter, which is imaginatively entitled Second Thessalonians. And this letter, the First Thessalonians, was written around about 51, 52 A.D., It's when Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's traveling around Europe. He's preaching. He's leading people to Christ. He's planting churches. And uh, as he goes around what is, he goes from what is kind of Turkey across into now what is Greece, Philippi, and he makes his way around right down into Greece and ends up in Corinth. And as he's probably in Corinth, that's probably where he wrote this letter from, he writes this letter to uh, encourage the Christians back in Thessalonica. He'd recently been there. We're going to read about that in a minute. He'd planted this new church. He'd preached and a whole group of people had become Christians. He'd been there at least three weeks, probably quite a lot longer from that. We know that because the book of Acts uh, records what happens in Acts 17. Uh, and so before we get into First Thessalonians, let's read Acts 17, because it gives us a really great context of where this letter is coming from and, and what Paul's addressing and the kind of situation and the context that it's been written in. So we're going to read from uh, Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, and we're going to read verses 1 to 15, and this will just give us a little bit of a context. So if you remember um, last year, we were looking through Acts, and we were doing Acts 16, and this was the last bit that we kind of uh, dealt with, I think, actually. And it's where the church was started in Philippi. And Paul and Silas get thrown into prison. There's an earthquake at night. They, get, they uh, escape, or they make their escape. And then the Philippian jailer comes out, and then uh, he thinks they, they've run away. So he's about to kill himself. And Paul says, no, don't harm yourself. And, of course, he then uh, trusts in Jesus. And, of course, Lydia was there as well. And there's that new church started in Philippi. And they leave Philippi, and they make their way on to the next kind of towns and cities in northern Greece. And this is where we get to in Acts 17. So Acts 17, we're going to read right the way down to verse 15. So Luke's writing this uh, about Paul and his team, his church planting team, and he says this, When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, 
These men, who have caused trouble all over the world, have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So that's the context, that's the setting, that's how the church in Thessalonica began in the, in the midst of a really kind of exciting period, but also great persecution breaks out immediately as soon as the gospel is preached. And so Paul and Timothy and Silas had traveled through the province of Macedonia, which was one of the two Roman provinces of what made up now what is uh, modern-day Greece. There should be a map up there for you. And you can see uh, what is now kind of Turkey, was called Asia Minor. And they'd gone over into, nor- into what is now northern Greece, into the province of Macedonia. And below that was the province of Achaia. Now, Macedonia in the Bible isn't to be confused with modern-day Macedonia. Modern-day Macedonia has slightly different borders. It's further to the north. So basically think northern Greece when you, when you read Macedonia. And Thessalonica was a city, and it's still there, still there in Greece. You can go and visit it today. It's in northern Greece. It's now called Thessalon, um, Thessaloniki, or, or sometimes Salonica. And they even have a well-known football team, I believe, if you're into football. And as Paul and Timothy and Silas arrived in Thessalonica, they stayed there for a while. We read in there in Acts 17, probably at least three weeks, probably quite a bit more than that, but certainly at least three weeks, Paul preached in the synagogue for three Sabbaths, Luke writes, which meant it was at least three weeks and possibly longer. And as he preached to these Jews in the synagogue, told them about Jesus, told them the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, the one that the Jews had been waiting for, some of them responded, some of them accepted uh, Jesus as the Messiah and, and, and put their faith and trust in him and believed and became Christians. And in addition to this Jewish group, there were also uh, a great many uh, Greeks who also became Christians. Luke doesn't write about that so much, but we read about that later on. There's a whole group of non-Jewish Greeks who were the, the, the native people of that area, responded and put their faith in Jesus. And Paul taught them as much as he could while he was there. But the Jews who hadn't accepted what Paul said became jealous, and they rounded up a mob from the marketplace and they started a riot in the city. And so Paul and Silas just had to get out. And there should be a picture up there of the marketplace. That's the, the excavations. That's the marketplace in Thessalonica. That's there. That is where the, the mob were gathered from. Some unruly characters. The Jews went out and got them and started this riot. And so the new group of Christians who were left behind as Paul and, Ty- and, and Silas and Timothy had to flee were there. And they founded a new church. This was the beginnings of the church in Thessalonica. And so Paul was keen to write to them and encourage them and support them because he had had to leave them. And this was often the case uh, with Paul. He had to flee. He had to get out. So he leaves this church behind. So he wants to write to them. He wants to encourage them and try and help them because they were facing all sorts of persecution and opposition. Some of them were Jews and were facing all sorts of hostility from Jews who didn't like the Christian message, didn't like the, uh, the message that Jesus was the Messiah, and they'd rejected this good news. And some of them were Greeks, and some of their fellow Greeks and Romans were also giving them a hard time. 
So they were all facing really significant persecution. And when we get to um, 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul writes the fact that he said, Some, I, don't want to, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who've fallen asleep, which gives us a good idea, given that he was writing this letter very quickly after the church was planted, that probably quite a few of the Christians had been killed for their faith. They were asleep. In other words, they had died. Um, and so Paul is writing, saying, look, some of these folks have died. I don't want you to be ignorant about what's happened to them. They've, they've gone to be with Jesus, and we'll look at that. Um, in a few weeks' time. So they were facing significant, serious opposition and persecution. Probably a whole group of them had been martyred as well as part of that persecution. And so Paul wrote this first letter, First Thessalonians, to them. And we're going to read the first part of this letter this morning. We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 1, and we're going to go from uh, verse 1 to 10. Uh, so if, you, if you've got a Bible and you want to flip over to that from Acts, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 1 to 10. So Paul is probably in Corinth, not definite, but probably in Corinth. He's writing this letter fairly quickly after the events. don't know exactly how soon, but fairly soon after the events. And he writes this letter, and he says this, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So as Paul is probably in Corinth, and Timothy had just arrived from Thessalonica. Chapter 3, verse 6, if, we re, if you kind of skip on in the, in, in, the, in the letter. Chapter 3, verse 6 says this. Paul writes, he says, Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. And so having received this, this encouraging news from Timothy, Paul wants to write, he wants to make contact with them, he wants to encourage them and to give them some uh, some instruction and some Christian teaching, some Christian doctrine. And so he starts his letter by saying, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. And as he writes this letter, he obviously has great love and affection for the Christians back there in Thessalonica because he writes so warmly about them. They'd all become well-known right the way throughout Greece. And in a very short space of time, all the other churches that had been established in that area had heard about them and knew about them and were being encouraged by what they were doing. And Timothy had also brought this really encouraging report to Paul about how they were living for God, how they were serving God, and how they were doing their best to spread the good news, the gospel, all around the area. And so Paul writes this in verse 2. He says, We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul focuses on 
and commends them for their work and their labor for God and their endurance in the face of great persecution. It's difficult for us to kind of get into our heads or to get into the heads of what it must have been like for these folks. Paul and his team were probably there not very long, at least three weeks. It may have been longer. They hadn't had a great, you know, they hadn't had sort of years and years of teaching and normal life. They'd kind of got thrown into it. They'd accepted the gospel and immediately persecution had broken out. And Paul and, uh, and Silas and Timothy had to disappear. And they were just baby Christians. They knew very, very little about what it meant to live for Jesus and, and all the stuff that we take for granted. They had nothing. If you think of all the resources that we have today and, uh, you know, and all the books and, and, and Christian music and churches and, that, and all this kind of stuff, they had nothing. They were just there on their own having to, to get on with it. Baby Christians, probably not knowing a huge amount, but they gave their everything to God and they gave everything for God. They worked hard for God, and they labored for God, doing all that they could to spread the good news, Paul writes. And they showed great endurance in the face of great persecution. So what was it that drove them to work so hard for God? What was it that enabled them to endure such great persecution? Paul says that their work was prompted by faith. Their work was prompted by faith. In other words, they had heard the gospel message, that Jesus had died on the cross, taken the punishment for their sins, and had risen again. And because they knew that by placing their faith and their trust in who Jesus was and what Jesus had done, they'd been forgiven and they'd been made right with God. And the, the knowledge of this, that their faith had accomplished this, and that Jesus had accomplished this for them, the knowledge of this spurred them on to live for God and to serve him with all their lives. They weren't trying to work hard to earn God's love or his favor, they knew that they were already deeply loved, already loved more than they could imagine or understand. And that through putting their faith in who Jesus was and, and, and what he'd done, they had received God's favor. They had received forgiveness. They'd been made right with God, and they'd received eternal life. And this was a free gift that they'd received simply by having faith in who Jesus was and what Jesus had done. God's grace, his unmerited favor. That's what grace means, to treat somebody in a way they don't deserve. And God's grace to us is God treating us in a way that we don't deserve. We deserve hell and wrath and punishment. And yet when we, when we put our faith in Jesus, we receive God's grace. We receive, we receive forgiveness. We get a right standing with God and a great relationship with God, to have peace and eternal life and so on. God's grace, his unmerited favor had been poured out on them because they had faith in Jesus. And it was God's amazing grace released to them by faith that drove them and inspired them to live for God. Paul says their labor was also prompted by love. They worked hard for God. They gave all that they could to live for him and spread the good news because of God's love for them. They weren't trying to earn God's love. It was because they knew that they'd received God's love through faith in Jesus that they wanted to do all that they could in response to having received that love to show God how grateful that they were. God's love expressed in and through Jesus was so amazing that it drove them, it inspired them, it motivated them, it caused them to live and give everything for Jesus. It drove them to live lives that were a response to God's love. And that's such an important truth for us here today to get our heads around. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at how important it is, isn't it, to, to spread the good news, to spread the gospel, and to work hard at doing that. We talked about uh, serving God in, in, here at Regent or in other churches and particularly seeking to spread the good news through this church and, and, and being involved in different ministries. And I think there are different ways that we can approach serving God, probably three ways or, or three responses to the, the, the call and the challenge to serve God. Firstly, we can sometimes end up resenting 
the cost of serving God. We, you know, we read verses, we hear songs, we're inspired, or we're challenged to do things for God. And there's a, there's a response in us sometimes which is a resentful one. Because we know that serving God is about sacrifice, and there are costs. Uh, to really live for God, to really serve Him, does require great sacrifices. We don't always want to make those sacrifices. I know I certainly don't. Secondly, some people approach serving God as a kind of a chore because they fall into the trap of thinking that God is some kind of ogre that wants us to make or, or, or wants to make us work hard in order to gain his approval. We think that, you know, if, if I just do a little bit more for God, I just need to work harder, do more, tell more people about Jesus, and then maybe I'll gain his approval. We believe theoretically in God's grace, but in practice we're legalists and, and we're kind of living and trying to earn God's approval in our lives. If I just share the gospel with one, with one more person, then God might like me more or might love me more or approve of me more. That's wrong too. The third way of serving God, I think, is the correct way. It's the way the believers in Thessalonica were doing it. As they thought about how much God loved them and all that God had done for them in, in, in Jesus coming from heaven to earth and enduring the cross and the wrath of God, becoming our sin and dealing with that sin, as they thought about God's grace and all that they'd received through Jesus, they simply couldn't help but give their lives to serve Him. It was the only rational, logical response. They were motivated. They were driven by God's love, by God's grace and His love. They knew that they were more loved by God than they could ever imagine or understand. That God had forgiven them, that He'd made them right with Himself, that they'd received eternal life. And so in response, they wanted to give their lives to God. Serving God wasn't a chore. It wasn't, oh, there's another rotor I've got to fill in, or I've got to turn up and do this. Or This wasn't a chore for them. It wasn't something they resented. They weren't trying to earn God's love. They had received God's grace, God's unmerited favor. And so they just wanted to live for Him. See, if you think serving God is a chore, then, we, then we've missed the point. And actually, I think, you know, duty is a good thing. And we need to be, we need to be people who, who are committed and do what we say we're going to do. But if we, if we think that serving God is about duty, we've kind of missed the point. God says in the Old Testament to the people of Israel, as they went through their duties ceremoniously in the temple, but, you know, they, they brought sacrifices which were meaningless. Their heart wasn't in it. Their love wasn't in it. And God says, kind of paraphrasing what he says through the prophets, I don't want your empty sacrifices. I want your love. Yeah, you're going through the motions externally, you're doing it, your, your, your duty's being fulfilled, but your heart's not in it, your love's not there. I want your love. And if we think that uh, serving is a chore, then we've, we, we've, we've missed the point. And if you think God, that God loves us more if we do more, then equally we've missed the point. If we think that if I just tell one more person about Jesus, then I might be loved more by God, that's not true. Yes, we should keep telling more people about Jesus. Of course, that's obvious. But not driven by guilt or legalism, but driven by a love for Jesus. God doesn't want our duty. And God doesn't want us to try and impress him. God just wants, write this down, God wants us to know how much we're loved by him and to love him back in response. There's an outline in your seat and the outline's there for you. Uh, since I did this at about one o'clock this morning, it'd be really good if you filled it in. God wants us to know how much we're loved by him. And he wants us to love him back in response. God doesn't want our guilt, our legalism. He doesn't want our chores, our duty. He wants our love. He just wants us to, to be taken up with love for Jesus. 
and just fall in love with Jesus all over again. So that we do what we do out of love and not out of a duty or chores. Sometimes in life, serving God can be hard and, and, and we do get fed up and we do face real opposition. Even persecution maybe, as the Thessalonians did. And that's why Paul says that they had great endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They were able to keep going in the trials of life because they were inspired by the hope that was given to them in Jesus. And when we struggle and when we, we find life difficult and we feel like maybe giving up, and, and that will happen. As we go through life, you know, we're not always on a high. It's great on a Sunday morning to be enjoying and worshiping God and so on. But sometimes as, as reality kicks in midweek and, and things go wrong and all sorts of things can happen, sometimes we, you know, we, we lose our joy, we lose our passion. And life is difficult and we just feel like giving up sometimes. Maybe we feel like quitting on the Christian life, quitting serving God. We've just had enough. Well, you know, the key, and write this down, the key is to stay focused on Jesus. That's what these Thessalonians were doing. They were inspired by the hope that Jesus gave them. They were inspired. They, they looked to Jesus. And by, so if we stay focused on Jesus, he inspires us to endure and to keep going. If we stay focused on Jesus, if, if daily we're kind of renewing our love and renewing that passion and focusing on God's grace and reminding ourselves of God's grace, then it spurs us on, it, it, it helps us, it, it helps us, it inspires us to endure and keep going. And if your life is hard right now, maybe it is, let Jesus inspire you. If you feel like quitting, if, if you feel like just giving up, focus on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. Let him inspire you so that you endure and that you keep going. If you're fed up with serving, try to remember that you're doing it for Jesus. So when you're making coffee on a Sunday morning, you're doing it for Jesus. When you're playing an instrument up here on a Sunday, we're doing it for Jesus. When you're cleaning parts of the building after an event maybe, and you think, what am I doing? We're doing it for Jesus. I had a real rebuke from the Lord. Uh, the carols by candlelight, just kind of clearing up after the service. Everybody else had gone, I think once over the building. It's in the gents' toilets and walked in and found some toilet paper that had been used and hadn't gone in the toilet. Put it that way. So... I found myself on that evening cleaning up the, the toilet and thinking on my knee, what am I doing here on my knees doing this? What am I doing? And I just felt a, really, a real slap from God, a real rebuke from the Holy Spirit. You're doing this for me. You're doing this for me, not for other people. You're doing this for Jesus. And when we feel like sometimes, you know, just kind of quitting or it feels like a chore or it feels like we can't be bothered, Remember that it, we're doing this for Jesus. And Jesus did everything for us. And so we don't do it out of some legalistic thing. We don't do it to try and impress God or impress other people. We're doing it for Jesus. And sometimes it will be irritating. And sometimes life is, is difficult. And sometimes it's a chore or it can feel that way. But we do it for Jesus. And that helps us to keep going, to inspire us to go forwards. Not only was Paul encouraged by their hard work and endurance, he was also encouraged by the transformation in their lives. He says in verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. When Paul and his team had preached, there had been a clear transformation in these people's lives. The power of the Holy Spirit was, was evident. He says, You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Even though they suffered greatly beyond 
anything we can imagine. I mean, some of them have probably been killed and, and they were facing real life persecution. They still welcomed the, the message of the gospel with great joy. And so, reading on, says Paul, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. All the other Christians throughout Greece, Macedonia and Achaia were the two Roman provinces that made up what we now call Greece. All these other Christians were aware of their faith. And they were a model. They were a great example to them. And Paul says the Lord's message rang out from them. In other words, that having heard the good news about Jesus and encountered God's grace and been transformed by it, they were like a bell ringing. And everybody else could hear about God's grace and about the gospel from their lives. They were like a bell ringing out. And they did their best to make sure that as many other people as possible heard about Jesus as well, like a bell ringing for all to hear, driven not by uh, legalism, not by guilt, not out of duty, but driven by God's grace and his love, prompted by love, inspired by God's grace. And Paul says that the Christians across Greece had seen how these new Christians in Thessalonica had totally changed. And the news that he'd received from Timothy reinforced this. He says, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The, the Greeks among the Christians in Thessalonica, some were Jews, most were Greeks. The Greeks amongst them had been uh, idolaters, pagan idolaters. They worshipped, they, they, they lived slavishly, followed and served idols. Idolatry was a, just an everyday part of life in uh, the Roman Empire and in Rome and Greece and right across the world at that time. And when they heard the gospel preached to them by Paul and his team, they, they realized through the power of the Holy Spirit, the convicting and enlightening power of the Holy Spirit as the gospel was preached to them, that these idols that they'd been living for and serving were, were completely false and that idolatry was stupid. And so they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Idolatry is when we worship something that God has created rather than worshiping God the creator. That's what idolatry is. It's worshiping something that God has created rather than worshiping the creator. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 2, that mankind has rejected the truth of God and has embraced a lie. And, they, and, and mankind worships created things. People in Paul's day worshiped stone and, and wooden and metal idols fashioned to look like gods and so on. If you go to India, particularly today, if you've ever been there, you will still find people fervently and slavishly worshipping physical idols and statues. I was out in India about four years ago, I think it was now, and it was just, uh, stunning is the wrong word, but, but uh, really shocking, I guess, was, is, is the probably correct um, description, just to see people totally slavishly worshipping idols, intelligent people, and shrines everywhere, and people going and, and offerings to little shrines in the walls and in houses, and a real sense of darkness and, and, and ins people enslaved by, by, by worshipping these idols. And there were whole shops, there were whole yards uh, along the roadside, and you could get you know, all the very different kind of Hindu gods, and they were, they were all just stacked up in piles, and you went and bought yours and took it home. And intelligent people, but slavishly worshipping idols. So that still happens in, in many, many parts of the world today. Here in the UK, our idols are less likely to be uh, things like that, 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 that they're a little bit less obvious. We have to think more. What does idolatry look like for us here in, in the UK? And I think it's things like money. It's things like success. It's things like status. It's things like our possessions. It's our careers. It's sex. Maybe it's, it's our families. Maybe it's a relationship that's uh, an idol for you or for us. 
Paul says here that the true or part of the true evidence for a person trusting in Jesus is for them to turn away from idolatry. In whatever form that might take, it might mean turning away from physically worshipping a statue, or it, might mean phys- or it might mean turning away from worshipping the idol of status, or worshipping the idol of career, or of money, whatever it might be. And instead, worshipping God, so that God is number one, that God is central, God is, has that first place, and we no longer worship other things. So, so the challenge for us is this, who or what am I worshipping? Who or what is the most important thing in my life? Part of the evidence of these Thessalonians turning to Christ had been a turning away from idolatry. And the challenge for us is, in what areas are we idolaters in our lives? The the greatest sin is idolatry, is to worship something other than God. And we can find ourselves falling into that trap in all sorts of different ways, worshiping things that uh, become more important to us than God. When God looks at our lives, does he see what we have turned away, or does he see that we've turned away from all that we once held dear and all that the world encourages us to hold dear? And does he see that we've turned instead to worship him, that he is our all in all, that we love Jesus more than anything else? Is is that what God sees as he looks at us today in our lives? And when those around us look at our lives, if, if people were writing a report to the Apostle Paul today of us, would they report how we've turned from idols to serve the true and living God? Would they see that? It's a little harder for us because it's not as obvious. It's not, you know, we're not bowing down and praying to an idol, but we can find ourselves doing that without really thinking about it in other ways. What kind of a report would you give me? What kind of a report would others give you, I wonder? Paul describes these Christians at Thessalonica as being in love with God and being focused on God day by day. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. He says, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Having turned away from their old lives and having turned to serve the true, the living God, the only God, they were living now with the expectancy of the return of Jesus. This was what they lived for because he would rescue them and he would rescue us from the coming wrath of God when he judges and punishes all who reject him. Their lives were hard, way harder than we can imagine. They were experiencing significant persecution, but they were focused on the return of Jesus. They were living with that expectancy that Jesus was coming back. They were living for God. They were serving him. They were spreading the gospel. They were like a bell ringing out all around the region. But they also had one eye on the sky looking for Jesus' return. They were enduring the hardships of life inspired by the hope of the return of Jesus. And as we'll see in chapter 4, whether they were alive or had died, their hope and our hope was exactly the same. It was to be with Jesus forever. Rescued from this messed up world, rescued from God's coming wrath, and to be with God forever. I don't think many, if any of us here today, are really facing persecution. Maybe sometimes we get a bit of stick at school or, or in work or maybe in families, but not persecution in in the way that these folks in Thessalonica were experiencing or or Christians in North Korea or in places like that do. But many of us do battle with different issues. Maybe health issues, significant health issues which are uh, excruciating and, and take a massive toll on us psychologically as well as physically. Maybe a failing marriage, maybe your sexuality, maybe financial struggles. It may be a really difficult temptation that is so destructive. Regardless of what the issue is, like the Thessalonian Christians, the call for us is to 
to look up to the sky as we wait for God's Son from heaven. Jesus is coming again. Do we believe that? Amen. Still awake? I'm just about awake. Jesus is coming again. Isn't that fantastic? Amen. Thank you, Anna. And whether we're alive or whether we've already died and gone to be with him, then when he comes, he will take all those that have trusted in him to be with him forever. And then this world will be over for us. And all the trials and all the struggles, real and, and, and difficult that they are, all those difficulties will have been worth it as we gaze on the wonderful Savior's face forever. I wonder, is, is, is Jesus your all in all? Are you, are, are you gazing on the Savior? An old hymn, gazing on the Lord in glory while our hearts in worship bow. To, to be gazing on the Lord, to be having, living with one eye on the sky, getting busy serving God in the here and now, extending his kingdom, loving our neighbor, loving God, but with one eye on the sky, waiting for his return. Are you ready for the return of Jesus? Are you ready for Jesus' return? Does it fill you ex- with excitement? Or does it fill you with dread? If it fills you with dread, then can I urge you to turn in faith to the living Lord Jesus who loves you and gave himself for you on that cross so that his return is no longer a fear of judgment and punishment and wrath, but a a return of being united with the Savior who loved you and gave himself for you. If it fills you with even just a tinge of excitement, as much as we can get excited as British people, then let your excitement grow. Let your excitement grow. Jesus is coming again. So let's get busy, inspired and blown away by his grace and living for him with one eye on the sky. Not out of cold-hearted duty or thinking that if we work harder and do more for God that he'll love us more, but with a passionate love for God, inspired and driven and motivated by his grace to us. And as we serve him and as we live for him and as we do our best to spread this good news about Jesus across our world, let's keep one eye on that sky as we wait for Jesus to return. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you, Father, for your love to us, which is just beyond our imagination or understanding. That You would love us enough to come in the person of your Son and, 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 and deal with the wrath that we deserve. Thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. We worship you this morning. Thank you, Father, for the great example uh, of these Christians in Thessalonica and, and the example of many other believers around the world today who can inspire us by their living reality of how they live, live for you and love you. Help us, we pray, Lord, as we, as we work our way through this letter in coming weeks to be inspired and motivated and challenged and rebuked and encouraged, whatever it might be, so that we might learn from their example and we might live for Jesus more. And more importantly, that we might love Jesus more. Oh God, help us to love you more. Birth in us a, a, a passionate love for you so that all that we once held dear we count loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Help us to live with one eye on the sky, to be looking for his return. And we would echo John's words as he closes Revelation and closes the Bible. Even so, come Lord Jesus.